Let me begin uh, this morning by asking a question. What is it in our lives that prevents us from having a sense of intimacy or a deep relationship with God? As I pondered this over the last week or so, I find myself asking that question, but getting the beginning of an answer in what was quite a surprising place. There was a, a book I got a number of years ago that I, I thought was quite superficial in many ways, but quite funny. It's called Stuff Christians Like by an American author called Jonathan Acuff. Uh, and it's a, a really humorous, wry look at the things that we do in the Christian church and why we do them. Uh, and it's uh, basically a, a humorous kind of book. But in the middle of the book, or in a chapter entitled Thinking You're Naked, he relates a story that happened with his five-year-old daughter. She was five years old when the incident happened. She was playing out in the yard, and she fell, and she scraped her forehead, and there was a cut uh, and she came into the house and Jonathan uh, wanted to put an elastoplast or a band-aid on her forehead and his daughter just point blank refused. Uh, and he said, why? And she said, I look silly. Uh, and uh, he therefore thought about that and wrote this chapter entitled Thinking You're Naked. I'd love to read this to you. It's a relatively long excerpt, but you'll understand why when we come to the end of it. So this is Jonathan Acuff writing in the chapter, Thinking You're Naked and relating to this five-year-old daughter. She had discovered shame. Somewhere, somehow, this little five-year-old had learned to be afraid of looking silly. I might have asked her this, who told you that you were silly? That question did not bloom in my head until much later, and I didn't understand it until I saw God ask a similar question in Genesis 3 and verse 11. To me, this is one of the saddest and most profoundly beautiful verses in the entire Bible. Adam and Eve have fallen. The apple is a core. The snake has spoken. The dream appears crushed. As they hide from God under clothes that hastily sewn together, he appears to them in the garden and asks them a simple question. Who told you you were naked? There's hurt in God's voice as he asks this question. But there's also a deep sadness. The sense of a father holding a daughter who has for the first time ever wrapped herself in shame. Who told you you were not enough? Who told you that there was something missing that you needed? Who told you that you were ugly? Who told you that your dream was foolish? Who told you that you would never have a child? Who told you that you'd never be a father? Who told you you weren't a good mother? Who told you that without a job you aren't worth anything? Who told you that you'll never love again? Who told you that this was all there is? Who told you that you were naked? I don't know when you discovered shame. I don't know when you discovered that there were people who might think you're silly or dumb or not a good writer or a husband or a friend. I don't know what lies you've been told by other people, maybe even by yourself. But in response to what you're hearing from everyone else, God is still asking the same question, who told you that you were naked? And he's still asking that question because we are not. In Christ, we are not worthless. In Christ, we are not hopeless. 
In Christ, we are not dumb or ugly or forgotten. In Christ, we are not naked. In Isaiah 61, verse 10, it says, For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. The world may try to tell you a thousand different things today. You might close this book and hear a million declarations of what you are and who you'll always be, but know this. As unbelievable as it sounds, and as much as I never expected to type this sentence in a book, you are not naked. End quotation. I think he's hit the nail on the head. What was it that made a little five-year-old girl be afraid of looking silly with a band-aid on her forehead? It's the world that we live in that has been shaped and twisted out of what God originally designed it to be because of sin. And as to why many of us do not feel a sense of intimacy with God, I think it's simply down to the consequences of sin. Sin brought shame and guilt into our world and into our lives. Sin alienates us from God. It cuts us off from God. It makes us feel we must earn or win his approval. Sin knows nothing of unconditional love, nor does it know anything of sheer unadulterated grace. I, I love that picture of Jesus on the cross uh, and the, the thief that turns to Jesus and, and wants to trust in him. And Jesus said to him, this day you'll be with me in paradise. And I can understand that some people would say, here's a man who has been crucified because he was a murderer. Uh, he was a thief. He was a real bad person. And Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. But that is the sheer unadulterated grace of God. And sin makes us not be able to understand or appreciate that. But here's the thing. We need not be alone in this world and in this life. We need not live with guilt and shame. We do not need to live without a relationship with the living God that develops and grows with the years. And Psalm 23 is a remarkable and an amazing testament to David's faith and his sense of intimacy with God. And so I want us just to, to learn a number of lessons this morning that I hope will help us in terms of thinking of our own relationship and our own intimacy with God. And here's the first thing. David knew God as his shepherd. Let me read verses one and two. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want or I lack nothing or I have everything I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. An eastern shepherd lived with the sheep. Uh, indeed, one of the pictures of Jesus uh, talking about a sheepfold is of this circular structure, and the eastern shepherd lay down across the doorway at nighttime, so he was literally the door of the sheepfold. And that's why Jesus said on one occasion, I am the door, or I am the gate. But the eastern shepherd didn't do what our shepherds do here. Our shepherds here, as I understand it, drive the sheep in front of them or they get the sheep dog to push them on and the shepherd comes behind maybe in a quad bike in these days. But in the Middle East, the shepherd always went in front of the sheep and he called them all by name to follow him. And maybe we find it incredible, but my understanding is that each individual sheep's face is as unique as our fingerprints. 
And so a shepherd gets to know the sheep and he knows them each one by name and he calls them to follow him. And the sheep know the shepherd. They'd recognize his voice and run to him when they're called. And although a flock could be large, each sheep knew the shepherd. And David says, God is my shepherd. Or if you like, the shepherd's shepherd. Because David himself had been a shepherd boy when he was younger. It's a beautiful picture of God and a common theme in Scripture. I love the picture, for example, in Isaiah 14, verse 11. It says, He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. I love that picture. That sense of the lambs that David says, God the shepherd carries them close to his heart. Is that how you feel about God, that he carries you close to his heart? That you're special to him, you're unique and loved by him and cared for by him? And can you say God is my shepherd? Because there's one thing in terms of believing in God, but it's another thing to know him. I can intellectually believe there is a God. I can believe in God in the sense I can believe in a divine being. But until I ask him into my life and to know him, then I can't say he's my shepherd. I did, as a very young boy of eight years of age, ask Jesus into my life. Uh, And uh, I think I prayed a little prayer like, Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Come in today. Come in to stay. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. And he did. And he became my shepherd. And David says, the beginning of knowing God is to know him as my shepherd. Secondly, this morning I want us to remember that David knew God as his defender. Let me read verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you're with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, many people think that this psalm, because we so often use it at funerals, is referring to David as coming to death or having an experience where he's frightened he's going to die. But actually, what David is really saying is, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and when I walk through a dark and mysterious place, then I understand that God is with me. Sheep, as you know, need grass and water. And in the Middle East, that's quite a problem. It's not like the 40 shades of green that we have here in Northern Ireland. And so the shepherd has to bring the sheep through difficult places in order that they might find pasture and water. And sometimes they had to go through these wadis, which were deep, uh, dry riverbeds cut through the semi-desert by seasonal torrents of water from the winter rains. Uh, And these could be really deep, steep places that some of them were so steep and narrow that the sun didn't always shine down into the bottom of them unless it was directly overhead. Uh, The commentator Gerald Wilson writes of his experience of one such wadi in recent years, and I quote him. He says this, I remember hiking down Wadi Kelt from Jerusalem to Jericho. A narrow ancient Roman aqueduct still flowing with water clung to the canyon wall at a height of several hundred feet. So imagine that. 
We began following the rugged footpath on the opposite canyon wall, dipping at points to the bottom of the wadi and back up the other side. I had enough trouble dragging myself up and down those rocky hills. I cannot imagine the difficulty of herding a whole flock of sheep through the valley of the shadow of death, end quote. As I said a moment ago, wadis were often seen by superstitious people as airy, scary places. Maybe David drove sheep through or brought sheep to follow him through the likes of Wadi Kelt. He was well aware of the dangers the landscape posed and the problems that lay in front of him. But here's the thing, and this is what I think David is teaching us here. When we go through valleys of trouble or despair or difficulty, that is not the end. For David said, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Valleys don't go on forever. Coronavirus won't dominate our lives forever. This valley of a pandemic is one that we will go through. And if in the midst of all that is happening, as would have happened with David uh, herding sheep, uh, sometimes there were wild animals came to attack and there were difficulties, then if we find that we have difficulties and problems and we are attacked, then we understand that God is our defender. Why do I say that? Because David says, your rod and your staff are with me to comfort me. I don't know whether you've ever really thought about the difference between the rod and the staff. We'll come to the staff in in a moment or two. But the rod was basically a cudgel. It was a weapon that David and shepherds used to great effect, in David's case, even killing bears that sought to devour the sheep. So the rod was not to be used on the sheep, but utilized to protect and to defend them, to save them from danger and even from death. So no matter what difficulties we face, no matter what opposition we face, whatever threats we might experience in our lives, David says, God is our defender. God is my defender. And then thirdly this morning, David knew God as his guide. Look at the second part of verse 3 and then the latter part of verse 4 again. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then you're with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There are two aspects of God's guidance here. The first is David says that God guides him in paths of righteousness. How did he know what the paths of righteousness were? Well, first of all, it was his relationship with God, but he was a man who immersed himself in the scriptures that were available to him at the time, the the beginning of the Old Testament. And he was a man after God's word who sought to put God's word into practice. And I think that's a very important point. Sometimes people have asked me as a minister, what is your theology? Uh, And they want to be able to attach words like evangelical or charismatic or liberal or fundamentalist or whatever kind of words they may want to use. Uh, And I often like to say, but my theology is what I live because the way I live flows out of what I believe. Uh, And sometimes the difficulty is there can be a disconnect between what we say we believe and what we actually do as people. And so I'm a great believer in saying that our theology is seen in how we live. Uh, And the life that we live points to what we truly believe. 
And so in my theology, which I describe as evangelical, I like to think that what it means is that evangelicals would be people of the Scriptures, people who hold to the basics of the faith without being judgmental of others or too narrow to recognize Christ wherever and in whomever he may be found. I see evangelicals as people filled with God's love and grace, people with a passion for spreading the gospel as really good news for the whole world and the people whose lives corroborate what they say they believe. For me, to be an evangelical means living in obedience to Scripture, taking all of this Word of God as being inspired and authoritative for living and putting it into practice. For me, it means modeling Jesus to the world. And so our guide is Scripture, and the witness of the Holy Spirit of God living in us, as Jesus said, he would lead us into all truth. But the other aspect of guidance is not just the Word of God, it's the shepherd's staff mentioned in verse 4. Whilst the cudgel is a crude weapon, the staff or crook was designed for the benefit of the sheep. The crook would be used to catch the neck of a sheep that had fallen into a ditch or a lamb that had gone astray to draw it closer to the shepherd or lift up the sheep that had fallen in the ditch. That's what our shepherd Jesus does for us. When we fall, he lifts us up. When we drift away from him, he draws us back. When we fight pain and distress and sorrow and despair or depression, when we go through a difficult valley, even if we cannot see the light above because the wadi is deep and the path is narrow, Jesus is still there to guide us through the valley and to help us in life. And part of God guiding us is his disciplining of us. Sometimes, just like the shepherd with the crook uh, or the staff, he has to grab us by the scruff of the neck and pull us back to his word and to living our lives by it. So God is our guide in life. And then fourthly, David knew God as his provider. Verse five, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, something that was done in the Old Testament days to signify blessing uh, and the abundance of love. Uh, You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. I have more than enough that I need. And the imagery here is a banquet at home in the palace, but David is not the host, God is the host. Uh, And David is able to say to all those who have opposed him, to those who have caused him difficulty, that as he's remained faithful to God, God has provided everything he needed. And I've proved that in my life. I remember when my dad took ill in 1966, I was a teenager and uh, his business went down the tubes and people said to me, Ken, you're going to have to leave school and get a job. Uh, and I didn't have to leave school, and I didn't have to get a job. until Some people say I've never had a job as a clergyman, but uh, I, I never, ever had to give up on the pathway through education that, that uh, I, I uh, went through because God provided. And I think many of us know that God is our provider. David says God is your provider. And then uh, lastly this morning, David knew God as his hope. I love verse six. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Donald Williams, the commentator, writes this, and I quote, for the Hebrews, eternity is not a timeless state 
but endless days. Here is what David will be before the Lord uh, forever and ever. Here is where David will be forever and ever. As Christians, we can take the forever as an indication of the hope David had and that we have of a home in heaven, a home not built by human hands, but prepared for us by the Creator who made us and who shepherds us through this life if we allow him to do so. A home where we will see God face to face. That is our hope, and that is a great thing. And the hope that we have of that place in heaven is because when we accept Jesus as our Savior, and he becomes my shepherd, then he promises to be with us in all the circumstances of life. He will be there for you and for me. And so our hope is a great thing. But as we conclude this morning, let's remember that God is your shepherd. God is your defender. God is your guide. God is your provider. And God is your hope. And when we know God like that, when we then lose things that are precious to us, family or friends or a job or financial security. Whenever life knocks us down, when we're let down by others, even when we're betrayed, we can get back up because we know the Lord is my shepherd. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in a world of six to seven billion people, you know each one of us by name. And your word reminds us that even before we were born, you knew us. That even before our lives began on earth, you knew how many days we would live and all that would happen to us. So help us this morning to trust you as our shepherd, the one who cares for us, the one who provides for us, the one who protects us and guides us and gives us hope. Help us to trust you. Forgive us for those times when all we say is, I want this, I want that, I want more, I want better, I want bigger. Help us, Lord, to be satisfied with what we have and to know that in you we have this wonderful, incredible hope, not only of sins forgiven through Jesus at the cross, but of life everlasting in heaven. And in the meantime, help us, Lord, to live for you day by day, whatever valleys we go through, whatever wonderful and good landscapes we go through, whatever oases we find, help us to follow you as your people, as your sheep, as your flock, and grant that we would know you as my shepherd. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.